Hashtag uh, Trudeau eulogies. If you follow Canadian politics or just headlines, you'll know that this is uh, a Twitter handle that was trending very high about a week and a half or so ago. And if you're familiar with the story, it's actually an embarrassment to us. Uh, this hashtag Trudeau eulogies refers to the fact uh, that Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, uh, put out a very idealized eulogy of Fidel Castro upon his passing. And he overlooked the human rights atrocities. Uh, and so the global stage, global leaders and, and just people everywhere became, uh, just jumped on it. This is the hashtag. And, and there was just a stream, almost an unending stream of ridicule and, and mocking our prime minister. Now, I have to admit, in that moment, as a Canadian, I, I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed. Here's this man that I am looking to functionally as my leader, as my prime minister, to represent me, to represent Canada, our nation, the Canadian flag. Uh, and, and his thoughts, his, they, they were at least not well fully thought through. And I watched the video of him at his first uh, media appearance, and they were bombarding him with questions about his eulogy, obviously. And at least uh, the public appearances that I've seen him on, on uh, the Internet and, and TV and so forth, uh, I've never seen him so lost. He, he looked like a deer in headlights as the media were just bombarding him, attacking him with questions and criticism and so forth. And then, uh, as he was being questioned, at some point he muscled up. Uh, he, he came to his own defense and he was trying to justify himself. And he was flexing some of his prime minister muscle. But I imagine in his mind, he was also lamenting. Uh, he was backpedaling and thinking, oh, I should have written something else. I could have, yes, still praised him, but uh, been more uh, just in touch and honest about the atrocities I committed as well, even if I wanted to say something good about him. Lostness, justifying yourself, and lamenting. These three things we actually see going on in another leader. And we shouldn't be surprised that we see it going on in, in David's life. This whole series has been about David. No surprise. But last week, uh, as, we saw, as we studied 1 Samuel chapter 27, it was a pretty heavy message. Uh, and we were just in touch with David's depression and the effects of his depression in his life. And today, uh, I hate to disappoint anyone, but it's actually going to get a bit darker first. But that's okay, because that's life, isn't it? Just when you think things couldn't be worse, life throws something at you again. And anyone who denies that, wants to uh, just insulate themselves from that, is, I don't mean to be blunt and rude, but you're, you're in denial. Life, it seems like it gets harder and harder as you get older. And so here, Scripture takes us honestly through the life of David, and we see his life actually hitting another low, a deeper low than even 1 Samuel chapter 27 last week. As we come to 2 Samuel chapter 1 then, we see David hearing the news of the death of Saul the king and his best friend Jonathan. And then we see how he responds to uh, the messenger that brought that news. And we see David just pouring out this lament, just pouring out his guts now, as always then, we, we don't want to just read the Bible as if it's just a piece of literature or a historical document. But in between the pages, interleaved, is, is God writing a beautiful story. And, and I 
make no apology to say this week in and week out. As we live our lives, as we are in Scripture, we need to search for, mind for, long for the Gospel story. The Gospel story as it's given to us and revealed to us in these pages from Genesis to Revelation. And then to see God's handprints, God's movement, His Spirit speaking and and moving in our lives as He is inviting us to have our story to be just subsumed by the Gospel story. So what I suggest to you today, the Gospel story that we see here is this, the, the big thought is this, the Gospel relentlessly pursues us. It's the same big thought as last week. As David sunk into his depression, as the issues of his heart just boiled over in, in anger and rage and murder and, and, and ransacking towns and leaving no one alive, the Gospel, it keeps pursuing. So even that thought alone is good news. No matter where you're at in your life, if this week your life took a turn for the worse, the Gospel is still relentlessly pursuing you. And so I want to say to you that the Gospel relentlessly pursues us, especially when, not even when, but now especially when, as we see David get to even a lower low. And we're going to see that first he, he's being pursued by God. God is working out His Gospel story, especially when He is losing His way. And then we're going to see Him lording it bringing his own brand of justice. And of course, then we see his lament. So first, the gospel relentlessly pursues us, especially when we have lost our way, when we lose our way. Where do we see this? Verse 1, after the death of Saul. We need to pause right there. We need to pay attention because two times before 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, the, the writers of um, the Old Testament we see this formula of a statement twice more. First, it's after the death of Moses. Second, after the death of Samuel. And each time, the authors write that way, and God is saying, I am starting a new chapter in the unfolding of the story of my people. And so as this significant person in the life of Israel passes away, God is saying, now I'm beginning something new. With Moses, when he passed away, now it was to go and seize the promised land and to experience a a significant measure of their destiny as the people of God. And as Samuel passed away, it was a chapter of closing of the great prophets and judges of Israel. And now God was about to begin a new chapter of providing this person, this figurehead, who is the king. And God was beginning in some sense, a long chapter that would span thousands of years until he would send the one true king of kings. And so here, after the death of Saul, God is beginning a new chapter, even still, because it's the death of a failed king. And now God is about to begin unfolding all the more concretely his plan for this one human being, this one person that we can truly throw our lives at and just be at peace that our lives will rise and fall well and land in pleasant places because of this one person. So the point is this, that God is doing something in the background. Now, 
to contrast that even more, look at the next phrase. David remained two days in Ziklag. Ziklag is in Philistine. Ziklag is the town that David chose, was given to him to retreat to. Ziklag represents David still far away from God. It's the continuation of last week's sermon. Him, David running far away, in some sense symbolic is spiritually fleeing from God and going as far from God in his promised land, his promises, as far as he could because he had lost sight of hope in God. And so the author wants us to see that David's life is going on as usual. But in the background, David didn't know that, that Saul had passed away, that he, was, that he died, and that Jonathan, his best friend, had died. And David is going about his normal life, but God is doing something. God is writing something significant in history, unbeknownst to David. So I want to encourage you right here, right now, God is doing something beyond your foresight. God is doing something in your life beyond your downness, your depression, your, your doubt, your discouragement, your, even your success. God is doing something greater, mightier, more wonderful than you could ever imagine. We jump to verse 3. And David said to him, so the messenger came, where do you come from? And these words of David, they're just natural, innocent words. This messenger came out of nowhere. He's probably panting. He's probably war-torn. But David is surprised, and so he asked, where do you come from? And, and this is a question that, that it speaks to our own lives. This is a question that we often ask in our own shape and form. What, what just happened in my life? I did not foresee this coming. We jump down to verse 10. And so the messenger is giving a report. So I stood beside him and killed him, meaning Saul. And this was a false report. If we, we skipped chapter 30 and 31, but in 31 we know that what really happened was that Saul committed suicide. And this poor messenger thought he would get into David's good graces by giving a report that he aided in, in killing David's arch enemy, Saul. And he goes on to report, Before I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen, and I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm. We need to pay attention to that. The reason why these words are important is because the crown and the armlet were the two regalia, the, the two pieces of the king's uh, uh, just, uh, wardrobe that identified him as king, that defined him as king. And so he was bringing the two pieces of evidence, the, the, the most important pieces of evidence of Saul's death. And this is to paint the picture all the more that David is about to come face to face with a great loss, a great grief. And that's why, in verse 11 then, the narration continues, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. I've never been so grief-stricken that I've had to tear my clothes, that this was a natural response. I've thrown things. Perhaps you've done something to express your, your grief, but, but this act of just tearing his clothes open, now we're beginning to see 
all the more, just David lost. First, he was lost spiritually in the land of Ziklag, still in the land far from God. And now, emotionally, the author is painting this picture of David being lost in his own wits. Not only David, look at verse 12. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord. Now, the circle of grieving widens. It's the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because Saul and Jonathan had fallen by the sword. And so all in all, I want you to see that David has lost his way. And he's become even more lost than we saw him last week. So the Gospel not only pursues us, especially when we are lost, but now we see David lording it. And this is a way that we deal with our loss at times. Let's see what David does. In verse 14, this messenger has reported what he did, giving this fabricated story that he helped kill Saul, thinking that that he would be in David's good graces. And in verse 14, David responds to him, How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now David is beginning to express his disapproval. But not only disapproval, he's about to be vindictive. He's about to execute his own definition of justice. Now why do I say that? His own definition of justice. I I, uh, just scoured the the, uh, Mosaic law. I combed through and there's no specific law about touching the king. There's no specific law that prohibits someone from destroying the Lord's anointed. There are instructions for the king. But David here, he is, this is his own conclusion that what this messenger has done is evil in the sight of God. But there was no specific law that commanded him to do that. Of course, there are laws against bloodshed and against murder. But this is David's own conclusion. And so he goes on to say in verse 16, after commanding him to be executed, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. We've seen David in different situations before wanting to exercise his own justice. And here... Matter-of-factly, call a spade a spade, he is defining his own standard of right and wrong and executing it. And so he muscles up as the leader, as the next anointed king, he defines what is right and wrong, and he rules by it. Just to apply that to our own daily lives and situations, our hearts are really complicated and, and when there is some loss or we're going through something difficult in our lives, we, we spill over in so many convoluted, complicated ways, don't we? But this is one way. When our hearts are, are not at peace and we're just boiling inside, we, we tend to lord it. We tend to now flex our muscle and, and we find some sense of release and commanding over certain people or just being able to yell at someone or take it out on someone. And 
And David is no different in that sense here. He's just as human as you and me. But in all this, the, the Gospel, it keeps pursuing David. And now we see David move to lament. And the Gospel is relentlessly pursuing him, especially when now he is at a low of blows. And so in verse 17, we see that David lamented with this lamentation. And that's intentional. David lamented with his lamentation. First, David lamenting, it, it, the, the verb there is just wailing, crying out loud, screaming in pain, in agony. The author could have just said, and David lamented, but he has to give a double force to it. And so he says, David lamented with this lamentation. And that word lamentation, the noun of it, is the, the state of people just beating their fists against their chest. And so in our modern, just today's vernacular, it's similar to adding insult to injury. It's a, a double hurt. Or kicking someone when they're down. That, that sort of double pain. And the author wants us to see that. Not only that, in verse 18, David was so grieved that he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. He will not let himself be alone in his misery. And he goes to his people as if you or, or me, when, if someone in our life passed away and we were so uh, grieved that we would go to all of Ontario and say, all of Ontario grieve with me. That's what David's doing here. That all of the people of his tribe, Judah, you must grieve with me. And he writes a song about it. And he comes face to face with certain things of life. His, his lamentation brings him face to face. In verse 19, face to face with the fact that the glory of Israel is slain. And so his lamentation is bringing him face to face with something that was of worth to him, something that was his pride and joy, that it's gone. In verse 20, he says, Tell it not in Gath. His lament is a bit embarrassed, ashamed. Gath is the capital of Philistine, the, the public enemy number one of the people of God. And he does not want any of them to know of this lament. And that's similar to you and me. When a tragedy befalls us, especially if it's personal or close to home, oftentimes many of us, are, our first reaction is to keep it private. Because there's something so painful about what has happened in our lives, we don't want to just be an open book to everybody. For some of us, as our personalities and psyches are, are complicated, there might be even a bit of shame involved in that. And so we need time before we can just let the public know of this difficulty that is going on in our lives. And, and similarly, just on a human level, as David is lamenting, he comes face to face with this sense of embarrassment and defeat. Verse 21, he laments, you mountains of Gilboa. If you recall, Gilboa is where Saul was slain. And here, just to, in, to put it in categories that we might understand today, 
He's lamenting about certain trauma. Not wanting to go back to where Saul was slain. And so he says, You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you. No field of offerings. For that's where Saul was slain. He doesn't want to have to go back there. He doesn't want to have to revisit. And then verse 23. And this should surprise us. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. This should cause us to scratch our heads because Saul was David's number one enemy. Saul spent the past approximately five years or so chasing down David, wanting to literally murder him. And yet here in David's lament, he's praising Saul. It's similar to what happens to us when something tragic happens. And it just equalizes all of life. It, it just clarifies life. And we begin to realize what's really important. Who is really important? That's why a, just a, a typical repeated story, when someone is on their deathbed wanting to reconcile with that one person in their lives. And forgetting about everything else. And so here David, in his lament, he still recognizes that Saul was beloved, that he was God's original chosen king. And he gives him praise. And in verse 27, the end of his lament, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. And so David's lament brings him face to face with the sober realizing that nothing matters in life. War, what was the, the point of this? It was meaningless. All this war for what? It just ended in the death of these two beloved people in my life. The weapons of war have perished. There's, there's no point to it. Let me go back through now this passage and just our, our, our points of losing our way, how we lord it. And we lament, and, and the gospel relentlessly pursuing us, especially when we go through these things, and just apply it to our lives then. First, when we think of the gospel relentlessly pursuing us, especially when we lose our way, one way you can practically live this out for yourself is to always assume God's good sovereignty. David was about to receive this drastic, this, 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 uh, Dire news, but God was up to something good. In the long run of his life, and in the long run of God's salvation story, God was doing something good. And you need to hold on to that. That's the one hope that does not fade. That's one hope that will not deflate. Now how do we do that? We can assume God's good sovereignty when we look at Jesus. This is where we need to make much of Jesus in our hearts, our thoughts. We can assume, we can believe, we can just operate that this is not a variable, this is a constant in our lives. We can assume God's good sovereignty when we see Jesus Himself becoming lost. Even as we are lost in our own ways. 
Jesus was far from his father's land, far from his home in heaven, and found himself here on earth. And why? Why did he, so to speak, become lost? We know that he was lost because on the cross, when when he screamed, Why have you forsaken me, my God? Those are words of being lost, of not knowing, not being where he longs to be. And so why? Why did Jesus become lost? So that, ironically, we could be found. We become found. We find ourselves. We find, talk to any Christian who is following Christ, their story will have that the, the theme somewhere in their story will be the line, I was once lost in my life, spiritually, in my sin, in my situations, in, in, in my mind, in my emotions. But when I came face to face with Christ and His grace, I was found. Just wrapped up a, a book that's been helpful for me in my own struggles. Uh, Zach Eswine writes a great book, and I recommend it to you, Spurgeon's Sorrows. And he says this, Hope has been dismantled, maybe for all intents and purposes destroyed. He's, he's referring to people who've, who've lost hope in their lives. But he encourages us, but a larger story exists in Jesus. The Gospel is pursuing you. And as your story feels shambled, just in pieces, what God wants you to know is that there's a larger story in which you can be found. Even if you feel like hope has been dismantled or even destroyed. And so we see in verse 11, David took hold of his clothes and and tore them. Now, I'm not sure that the author here that this, these words were given for this explicit, direct connection to Christ. But as I read these words of, of just David tearing his clothes, it reminded me of, of our Savior Jesus hanging on the cross. And, and he didn't, wasn't even in a place to tear his own clothes in his grief. But his detractors, his mockers, the Roman soldiers gambling for his robe and tearing it apart. And so Jesus was lost that we could be found. And we see David now lording it. And, and the application here, as we see David just in his lostness and flexing his muscle, executing his own brand of justice, here's the application. Think through your sense of justice to its logical conclusion. All of us are at fault for taking out the issues of our heart on other people or, or, or having our own sense of right and wrong in life, and we say, if we can live life this way, if life can be controlled and to, to fit this expectation, then I'll be happy and I'm going to fight as hard as I can so that my life fits what I define it as, my right and wrong. But what we need to do is think through our sense of right and wrong, our sense of justice, to its logical conclusion. A quote that I've been hearing for some reason in the past few months, several times it's just popped up in articles and, and radio interviews and so forth, but uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was quoted to say once that the, the arc of the moral universe is long, 
but it bends towards justice. And, and social activists love this phrase, and they use it all the time to espouse their causes and, uh, and to feel like they're great, like Martin Luther King Jr. But when we really try to understand what he's saying, Junior, Martin Luther King Jr. is saying this, that at the very end, if you take justice to its final conclusion, at the very end of that arc, there has to be a perfect justice. Either completely right or completely wrong. We like to think that we're being just because we're good enough. We're better than the person next to us. But if you take even your sense of justice to its very infinite logical conclusion, then you won't even stand up to your own sense of justice. I've heard it said that, or Christians oftentimes argue, you know, where universalists will say, all roads lead to God, and, and so they argue, it doesn't matter what religion you believe or what God you follow, all roads lead to God. And, and Christians have often argued against that. And, and to point to Jesus saying, I'm the only way, the truth, and the life. But the truth is, now just hear me out, the truth is, all roads do lead to God. But the question is, who's going to save you when you get to God? And there's only one person, as you are at the end of that long arc of justice, there's only one person who will save you, who can save you. And it's the one that David... His words, again, I don't know if this was intentional, but it makes us think. I think there's some foreshadow here. As we look at verse 16, And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you. I've killed the Lord's anointed. As we get to that, the end of the long arc of justice, these same words will be spoken to us. Your blood is on your head because your sins have nailed or did nail Jesus to the cross who is God's final true anointed. But as we're at that, that, the end of that long arc of justice, the mind-blowing beauty of the Gospel is that this anointed, even though we were the ones who nailed Him to the cross, even though His blood is on our heads as well, He turns it around. He turns it around. How does He turn it around? We don't have to fear the long arc of justice when we see justice and, and mercy colliding, the waves of these two colliding at the cross, as they crash over the supremely anointed. And so this brings me to our, our third application. As we see David lamenting, let yourself lament. This is important. Let this, let this sink in. Because many of us don't let ourselves lament. 
And we go through life. When something difficult happens, we just either stuff it or we numb it. We, we, we look to find some other happiness to cover it and, and to pretend our brokenness is not there. Even in our small group, I appreciate our small group so much because we're, we're pretty transparent with each other and we were just admitting to one another the way we deal with the tragedies in our life, the pains, the difficulties. We, generally, all, all of us just tend to avoid it. We don't deal with it. But what David does here, he, he just tears his heart out of his own chest, his cavity, and, and, and he lets his heart just cry. He laments. And this lamentation, it brings him face to face with the important things in life. That's what his song represents here. It, it reveals that he's, being, he's coming face to face with the brokenness in his life. Spurgeon, who openly talked about his depression in his sermons, he says this, that we as Christians, we as Christians are the strangest contradiction. Because on one hand, we are called, our, our, our destiny is the fullness of life. But on the other hand, the path to that fullness of life is the fullness of death. And perhaps that's why a lot of people don't embrace the gospel and Christianity quickly because you have to die in order to experience true life. But this was something, a a truth that helped Spurgeon walk through his own uh, dark valleys. And so in verse 19, we, we see here David lamenting Your glory is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. And again, this contradiction. Glory. The glorious one of Israel, who is the king, this Saul. He was meant to be glorious and mighty, but he's slain. And again, this is a future forward. Just just a, a picture of our Jesus. This is how now the anointed one turns it around because God in His glory in the person of Christ is slain for our sake. And where our blood should have been on our own heads because we have struck the anointed one. Now instead, Jesus as the perfect king, the sinless one, As he is slain, now he can turn it around. And at the long arc of justice, at the very end, is also mercy. Zach Eswine, he continues in that same book. He says, In time, even hope demolished can become hope rebuilt. If it is realistic and rooted, not just in the cross and empty tomb, not just in Jesus' death and resurrection, but also in the garden and the sweat-like blood. What, What is he saying? He's saying where we should have been just executed at that long arc of justice, this anointed one, this Jesus, can now turn it around because he himself lived in that struggle. He knows, he understands That's what the sweat-like blood is. That's what 
the, the garden is. We don't not only need a good theology of the cross and the resurrection, but we need a, a strong theology of Jesus' agony for being in the in-between in the garden as He was wrestling with His Father. As another place in Scripture puts it, that Jesus was able to scorn the shame of the cross because a joy was set before Him. And so Jesus was able to live in that tension, that in-between, because He had a clear view of the end. And because of His perfect sacrifice, that now instead of justice, He could turn around to the ones that drove the nails into His own hands and now instead extend mercy. Because He Himself knew lament. That's why I like to say that as Christians, you and I, we need to be in the end people. Christ followers are, are in the end people. I think that's what most of the world lacks in terms of their perspective. They don't look to the very end. They don't look beyond the end. But what it means for you and me as, as we see this Jesus who was in His own lamenting because of His lament, of His theology of the garden. You and I can walk through our lives with a great hope and no matter what assails you, to walk with the knowledge that your Savior will will lead you home all the way. So I want to end with just these lyrics. And we're going to sing this in a moment. Fanny J. Crosby, All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell. For I know whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well. Let's respond by singing this song.